come Holy Spirit and be our guest in a special way this day. Assist us in gaining a greater understanding as we study your word and as we acknowledge that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and especially for training in righteousness. And let my words be all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I know I said, and I reflected Bishop Harvey when I said, I think two weeks ago, that all these weeks after uh, Trinity Sunday, um, we're supposed to be reflecting on the words of Jesus. And generally, if I'm preaching from now on until Advent, I'll be consistent with that. But today, I was very much caught up in the epistle, which is, of course, Paul's, uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's, it's a very difficult passage, at least it is for me, and so I decided that I'm going to focus on that because we're not supposed to shirk our duties. We're supposed to do hard things. So, uh, I am going to reread it in its entirety because I do think it's difficult and I hope you'll focus on the thoughts that are there more than maybe you did a little while ago when Diane read it. And I'm also hoping that maybe in the future uh, you'll study it in greater depth. Paul's thoughts here are not easy, not intuitive, and they require more than casual reading and study but I believe they are most important to our continuing faith as Christ followers. They, in fact, have a great deal to say about how, how we should carry on our lives, especially now that we're acknowledging that we have the Holy Spirit in us. Here it is again. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be re to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is one full passage. There are many, Russ is smiling down here. <laughs> there are many questions that are raised by this passage, and I shall try to answer three that at least to me seem particularly important. Firstly, why does Paul seem to put sufferings and glory on a comparative plane as he talks about them? Secondly, what does Paul mean when he speaks of the revealing of the sons of God? And thirdly, why is this revealing so important and how does it connect to the release from bondage of the creation? Before I get into the questions, as an introduction, I'm going to take some liberty here and say that I see the phrase, the already but not yet, as a most suitable subtitle for this portion of Romans. Saying in another way, we are living in the between times. Now that phrase, already but not yet, I've used it before and I, I think every preacher has, is certainly not original with me. But I use it because it does describe well just where we are on the road to salvation and eternal life. 
Paul, if you know chapter 8 in Romans, and if you don't, you should, Paul has been talking earlier in chapter 8 about how we are different now that we have the Holy Spirit in us. And please recall the gift of the Holy Spirit just a few weeks ago at Pentecost. This gift assures us of part one of our salvation. Jesus has come to earth. Jesus has died for us on the cross and has been raised from the dead and ascended to be with his Father. But again, this is only part one. We are awaiting part two, and this will not occur until Jesus returns, as we are promised in Acts chapter one. So to the questions. Paul does compare a negative sufferings with a positive glory, seemingly in a quantitative way, and this may seem a bit strange, but it must be this way. I believe that sufferings and glory are welded together and cannot be broken apart. This is the way it was for Jesus and the way it has to be for us. What does Peter say in his first letter? And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Suffering, then, must come first, and then, like the sun following the rain, comes glory. So, just what is this suffering? In my sermon two weeks ago, you heard me speak about the worldly world and how we may be hated by it. And I emphasize that this is part of the deal of being a Christ follower. We're seen by worldly folks, and may I throw in here the word apostate, as goody-goodies because of our morals and ethics. Those very same morals and ethics under which we must function if we're going to live under the authority of Scripture. And our very presence upsets folks. Two days ago, during the Mass at the Lincoln Street Chapel, Bob Davidson read a lesson from 2 Timothy where Paul talks about a time when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Quote, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I love that. If that doesn't speak clearly to the here and the now, then I do not know what does. So all of this is part of the sufferings about which the apostle is speaking. Now, Paul certainly has some very concrete sufferings that he could recall with little difficulty. We know that he was imprisoned at least seven times and beaten God only knows how many times. And let us not forget that he was martyred in Rome. But we have sufferings that may be just as painful for us, although in a very different sense. Times are different now. We may not suffer torture, 
or martyrdom, but we may suffer unemployment. We may have repeated struggles with our spouses or our children. We may feel underappreciated, and that may be justifiable. And we face a secular world view that is forever taxing and challenging to us. Or we may suffer under continuing sin through one addiction or another. And I'm not just talking about you out there. Paul is more than aware of suffering, but he knows that the good times are a common, and so he waits with patience. Paul knew indeed that there's something more behind the curtain and that we are to wait expectantly for it. We must realize then that part of this already but not yet is these sufferings. Let me say again that as of now, with Christ sitting at the right hand of God, we are only half saved. Indeed, we're only halfway there. We will not be completely saved until Christ's return in glory. And it is after his return in glory that we too shall share in that glory. And you've heard it more than once that we do not know when Christ will return. Matthew 24 tells it very clearly that only the Father, and not even the Son, knows. But Scripture tells us more than once that we must remain expectant of that glorious day. We must live our lives as if his return might be tomorrow or even later today. Finally, Paul in 2 Corinthians has it beautifully in chapter 4, verse 17, calling the present time and circumstances a light momentary affliction. I love that. Compared to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. What faith Paul had. We should have such faith. So what about the revealing of the sons of God? For some reason, I've been rather dull in the past when I've thought about this phrase. I could not quite understand it. I think I was trying too hard. My wife Susan understood it very well, and she straightened me out the other day. <laughs> what does Paul mean here? That most insightful commentator John Stott says that this means that the identity of those who are acceptable to God will be made clear. There will be the disclosure of their identity on the one hand and their investiture with glory on the other. But Stott sees this revelation, most importantly, as the signal for the renewal of the whole creation. And this leads us to an answer to question number three. It is the entire creation that has suffered and is still suffering from the fall. The fall of man through Adam had tremendous consequences for the cosmos. Adam's fall was cosmic in its scope. Let us never forget that. Looking for just a moment at the Old Testament lesson from this morning, from Genesis chapter 3, we see God cursing the ground. Life for humankind ain't going to be no bowl of cherries anymore. Indeed not. It's going to be hard work with no free lunch. Paul says 
that the creation was subjected to frustration as a consequence of this judgment of God, which fell on the natural order, the cosmic order, following Adam's disobedience. Thanks a lot, Adam. Now, here comes the connection between the revealing of the sons of God and the release of the creation from bondage. Summarily, human sin had bad effects on the natural world. But also, salvation from human sin will affect it positively. As our salvation becomes fully assured at Christ's return, so does the creation become set free from decay. Oh, happy day. Again, I must remind you of myself to be patient and anticipatory as you groan inwardly about the status quo. You may well find it hard to keep a balance between patience and impatience. Some Christians lose their patience and become guilty of unbelief. Some try to force God's hand as they are carried away by enthusiasm for what is to come. Some go so far, as you well know, as to assign a date for Christ's return. I know you're well aware of that. It's happened repeatedly through the years. We must be most assured that it will happen as we expect. But we also must refuse to be hustled into impatience as we await that glorious day. I do hope that I have at least started you thinking about all this and that with more study you may gain increased understanding. I do not profess to have all the answers here. Before closing, I want to say just a word about one of the important activities of the Holy Spirit. Because really, chapter 8 is just filled with lots of things about the Holy Spirit. Thinking back to the arrival and subsequent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that began at Pentecost, at least that's when we celebrate it, this, this allows us to approach the Son, Jesus, and through him, the Father. And this is what we should be doing in all our prayers. We talked during my sermon on Pentecost about the key word that we should take from the arrival of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you all remember that. Mission was the word. But in addition to the commission that we received, we should also remember that the gift of the Holy Spirit allows us to pray, even when we're not too sure what we should pray about. Clearly here, the Spirit is ready, willing, and able to help us in our prayers. Again, John Stott reminds us that there are three people involved in our praying. Firstly, we ourselves. We in our weakness do not, do not know what to pray for many times. Secondly, the Spirit. And He intercedes for us with speechless groans according to God's will. And finally, God the Father, who we must remember searches and knows our hearts and knows the Spirit's mind. He hears and answers accordingly. Finally, let us remember the glories that are to come when Christ returns. Let us be expectant and patient, 
remembering that the glory will far outdo the sufferings that beset us at this time. Amen.